reading a book that's not the Bible, it leaves us with room to disagree with the writer, and it also leaves us room to disagree with one another, right? Um, and because of that, you could have more discussion. Uh, but when you read the Bible, it leaves us with no room to disagree with the writer, uh, but only room to disagree with one another. And I think that we could uh, have some very interesting conversations based on uh, a topic like this. So let me get into why this book. Uh, one of the first things you need to say when you do something like this is a caveat. Uh, do not take my choice of this book as a one-to-one -one reflection of my own thoughts on every single thing he says. Um, I think it is a generally faithful and useful uh, book. Uh, so I'm not going to bring up every agreement I have, and I will not bring up every disagreement. So um, I know sometimes when you get in situations like this, when somebody's leading a study and they get to choose the book, like as you're reading the book, you're kind of getting upset with the person who recommended it or something like that. Don't do that, right? We're reading it together. We're thinking through uh, the Israel of God uh, together as it is found in his explanation and hopefully leads us to the truth on what Scripture says. So why this book? Um, o. Palmer Robertson, if you're not familiar with him, I would uh, encourage you to read uh, really anything that he's written. He's very, um, a phrase I like to use, uh, vanilla reformed. Like he doesn't say anything outlandish. He's very right down the middle, standard. Um, he's very well respected. Uh, he helped, he was one of the founders of the PCA. Um, he's taught at Westminster Seminary. He's taught at Covenant Seminary, all over the place. Um, very reputable man. Uh, his most well-known book is probably Christ of the Covenants, uh, which is kind of an introduction to covenant theology. Really good. Uh, I, it's one of my favorites to give folks who are asking about that. Um, so another question, why this book? Because um, <clears throat> the topic is... Let's be honest, it's not safe, right? Uh, but you might say that that makes it necessary for us to discuss all the more. And let me give a kind of a, uh, a cultural comment for just a moment. Israel is one of the chief areas of disagreement in the political realm when it comes to... Uh, Oh my gosh, my finger just locked up. Between the older and younger generations. Um, I don't say that to raise anyone's alarms or anything like that, but it is true. And it would be nice if we could, uh, if I hope that the Lord will use this to, even if we don't agree on the political ramifications of all these things, it would be nice if we could at least uh, come to agree in the biblical realm and see what the scriptures have to say. Uh, the fourth thing, um, something I brought up in my sermon last Sunday morning, uh, if you've read I mean, even like two or three pages at all in this book, you see that O. Palmer Robertson is getting into how the Old Testament and New Testament relate to one another. That's, that's like every single page is, is filled with that. Much of our reading for this session focuses on how the New Testament handles the Old Testament and the promises regarding what is known as the promised land. And uh, 
It seems to me, though, based on uh, the way O. Palmer Robertson articulates it, that he would say that the whole earth is the promised land. Mm -hmm. right? Okay. Now, if there are two key scriptures, or I picked two out of some of the ones that he mentioned. Uh, the first one is in Romans 4. So if you want to turn in your Bible there, we can talk about that for just a second. Romans chapter 4. And uh, something I mentioned Sunday morning. Um, always be willing to listen to how the apostles interpret the Old Testament because they were guided by the Holy Spirit in a way that we are not, right? in a way that led them to write the Scriptures. Um, so when we read Scripture and the New Testament tells us what the Old Testament meant, we need to believe it. And so Romans 4.13 is the verse. Um, he says, For the promise that he, that's Abraham, should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. All right? Two helpful things there. Paul is telling us that the promise to Abraham was for the world. Right? And it's using a word in the Greek that conveys the idea of the world, not the land. And not the land exclusively, but ultimately the world. And that gets into the idea that uh, O. Palmer Robertson talks about with the, what's the words that he used, um, where he talks about the promises of the land in the Old Testament are a shadow where the New Testament reveals the reality, right? Um, are you familiar with uh, the phrases type and anti-type? Does that, does that ring a bell? Think of uh, the type, right? It's the prefigure of the anti-type. And they, all the types point to the anti-type, right? So if you're going to understand the type or the shadow properly, you have to see what the ultimate thing is in order to understand it in its fullness. The type is never the thing, right? Just like if you're walking up on someone, the shadow is not the person, right? It points to the person, tells you about them. Maybe they're a lot bigger than you or shorter than you or something, right? But once you get to the person, you see the reality. And that's how he relates, and I would certainly agree with him here, um, how he relates the promises of the land uh, in the Old Testament to the New. And he shows that that was even, I think he's trying to show it, I think Paul is, um, that that was Paul's understanding as well or Abraham's understanding as well, uh, that it was a reflection, that it was a promise for the world, not just a bit of the world. Um, yes, please. Um, in Romans 13 there, are you, are you, is he, is he inferring or is he interpreting the, the world there as uh, material for all the nations, tongues, and tribes? So... Yeah, so there, it's interesting you bring that up because he... Let me find what page it is because I actually... Okay. Yeah, so when he goes into that on page 26, um, so you can write that down for whenever I get you your, your copy of the book, but this is what he says um, where he cites that verse. He says, This perspective 
is confirmed by a number of references in the New Covenant documents. Here it is. Abraham is declared to be heir, not of the land, but of the world. By this comprehensive language, the imagery of land as a picture of restored paradise has finally come of age. No longer merely a portion of this earth, but now the whole of the cosmos partakes of the consummation of God's redemptive work in our fallen world. Now, this is uh, one of the areas where I felt like Mr. Lee was saying he felt uh, reading O. Palmer Robertson because he uses, he goes from land, not to earth there, or land to world. He goes from land to cosmos, which is, in a sense, bigger than the earth, right? Um, but also, in the next paragraph, he says, uh, the whole universe, <laughs> which is the land, from a new covenant perspective, groans in travail, waiting for the redemption that will come with the resurrection of the bodies of the redeemed, right? So he doesn't use the whole world there. He says universe. And uh, I'm assuming that that probably reflects a certain um, understanding that he has about how those terms are being used, uh, especially when you think about like... Uh, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, right? It's, it's a kind of a cosmic idea. And I think that would be how O. Palmer Robertson has probably taken those references there. Um, although I think what Paul means by world in Romans 4 is different than what Jesus means by world in John 3, but it is the same word. So uh, I, I guess that would be how O. Palmer Robertson is is taking it there. Um, the other passages in Ephesians 6, So in Ephesians 6, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, so that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Right, so what he's doing there is uh, quoting from the Ten Commandments, which were, uh, of course, a summary of God's eternal law. But what he's showing... Uh, o. Palmer Robertson, when he brings up this verse, I didn't write down the page number, um, but that in the New Testament that the application to even Gentiles, which the church at Ephesus would have been made up of, that that promise in the fifth commandment doesn't just apply to Old Testament Israel and their inheritance, but that their ultimate inheritance was what is promised to the Gentiles here, that is, the whole earth, and that even uh, so in one sense, you have uh, the Gentiles, those Ephesian Christians being brought in to the same faith, right? Because they have the same Ten Commandments. But then he also shows, Paul does, and o, o. Palmer Robertson is arguing, that it didn't just mean the land, it meant the whole world. Right? That uh, children in the New Covenant, because we live in the reality, not the shadows, that we stand to receive not a piece of real estate in the Middle East, as they like to say, 
but the whole earth. Um, Page 28. Page 28, okay, yeah. Before you go too far. No, go ahead. So this, is, this is where I kind of bounce back and forth. Before you get off of, of, Jerry's, of Larry's question, okay. go, to, go to page 10, which is earlier when he first, in, when, when he first introduces Cosmos, because that kind of confused me a little bit. Mm-hmm. You look down in that second paragraph, he starts yeah, yeah. Patriarch's promise is understood to imply that he is the heir of the cosmos. Again, he's right? not merely the land of the Bible, Romans 4.13, because God is the land of the whole universe. He will fulfill his covenant promise of redemption by reconstituting the cosmos. In this way, paradise will be restored in all its glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I missed that, but... Okay, but help me go back, because I because he because he, he's linking the original concept of to Abraham. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but that was it wasn't a physical piece of land. It was Eden, and it was the promise of the paradise was to come. Uh-huh. And all of Abraham's children that were believers, uh-huh. you know, numbered as the sand. Uh-huh. That's what they were focusing on. Yeah. So. But yet, that's where it got confusing to me. But yet, at some point, the land he talks about the whole earth in the process. So if that's what through, yeah, I'm trying to figure when he throws two terms together in there, causes me difficulty to figure out. Yeah, so he's. It just meant, that's why I said I had to, I struggled a little bit when I read some of this. Yeah, and this is why I agree with his overall point. Um, but what he's doing is going. Uh, land in the Old Testament points to earth, world, cosmos, and oh my god, my hand. Sean, what did you do to my hand? Uh, <laughs> oh, he's not in here. My finger keeps locking up. But see, and he's saying that. And I'm, I'm with you. I think he's trying to use all four of these terms interchangeably. That's what threw me off. Yeah. Yeah. And these two terms, I mean, these two terms are different from one another, but they're certainly different from these two, right? Earth and world. Um, but in Romans 4.13, we're talking about all of the world. Right. I would take it to mean in distinction from this, distinction. this. Okay. That's all how right. I take it, yes. Okay, all right. Now, there is a passage in uh, Romans 8 um, where God says that because he has given us his son, he will also freely give us all things. Uh, let's see. Uh, verse 32, uh, Romans eight thirty-two says, uh, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All right? Now, I, I don't necessarily take that to mean cosmos or universe. Right? I think it's just because Paul is talking about um, the inheritance of sons, basically, in Romans 8, and how in Christ we're not just redeemed from 
the curse of the law, right? There's no condemnation in Christ, Romans 8, 1, but that he goes on to show that we've been given the spirit, that we've been brought in by adoption and all the implications of that. And I don't, I, I think he also, just to kind of sidestep for just a moment, I think Opalma Robertson also kind of conflates um, the words I like to use are heavenly and earthly realities. Um, but when he starts talking about Israel's right to the land and whatnot, he doesn't quite go too far that makes me uncomfortable, but there's some ways he uses phrases that it's almost like Israel doesn't have a place in the land today or Jews don't belong in the land of Israel unless they're Christians. Yeah, and now that's the political issues today aside. Just like I don't think, and I don't really think that's what he meant. But the way he communicated it was almost like, well, nobody really possesses anything in a natural or earthly sense unless they're a believer, because everything belongs to believers. Now, of course, there's a sense in which everything does belong to believers, but we're also totally called to wait on that. And one of the points that I have later on, and I can go ahead and bring it up now, is that um, just because the Bible says that God is giving us all things doesn't mean that we can steal all things from everyone because they're already ours. Right? We can't violate one commandment in order to bring about the fulfillment of another. Right? Um, so, yeah, I, I think if, if he wrote this book today, he would probably phrase some things differently um, because there's been a lot of things that have happened in covenant theology, politics, and whatnot in the last 20 years. Um, but I still think uh, what he's latching on to, of course, I would say, is what the Bible really does teach, that the Old Testament promises of the land were a shadow or a type, and then in the New Testament we have the reality and the antitype. Um, so with that and I appreciated what he did towards the end of the first chapter uh, was bringing up how so how there are a lot of Christians today like dispensationalists and whatnot but I think we've even been not necessarily in this church but just people that aren't necessarily dispensationalists because of things like politics and because of things like growing up in a um, more fundamentalistic society like we have in the south that we almost slip back into thinking that they live in this, but we live in that, right? Yeah, yeah and, and, and I see the danger of going that way, but I, but I, but I do think he, he's, he, he's, he's comes across so strongly in the typological construct, mm -hmm. okay, that he almost denies an earthly reality to the continued existence mm -hmm. of Jews in that land, right? I, or, or, I don't see it as, in my mind, I don't see it that that they no longer, you know, yes, if the issue is what's the ultimate essence of the owning and possessing the land, it's from God and being involved with God. Mm -hmm. I get, get all of that, but I, that, I don't see in my mind that that excludes some real link between them and the land that is ongoing 
because there is some future promise for them. Now, in the last chapter, which I haven't read yet, right. he gets into that. And I'm not, what I would have read about it, I'm not quite sure I agree with him, but, uh, you know, I, there's, and I just say two points, Lord. One of them is, I've read several books on the Israeli various wars they've had. Mm -hmm. It's miraculous. There is no other way to describe the victory that they have in an earthly matter. I mean, it's just beyond earthly comprehension. Now, that's just an opinion. That's an opinion. Sure. But, but you just look at the odds, the battles they fought. They sound like they just came right out of the Bible. Like, hmm. You know, uh, you know, whole mountains of tanks coming against them, and you know, one or two people fight them off and survive, and whatever else. And so. I'm not so sure there's something, there's something there I'm not quite sure how to articulate. There is some connection mm -hmm. in my mind that God has with Israel as a nation today. And I'm not quite sure what it is. I don't have to argue it, but yeah. I, I don't accept his exclusion of it. I, mean, mm -hmm. I think he's going too far there in my mind. Yeah. No, I, I can understand that. Um, and I mean, you know, if you've read anything on uh, Reform and Eschatology too, or even other eschatologies, really, um, you know there's debates about uh, what role Israel may or may not play in the future. Um, and that kind of, you know, it, it, maybe once we get to the end of the book, we'll see, but um, that kind of tempers, I'd imagine, some of the things that, that he says. Uh, like, you know, a lot of the older reform writers, and Mr. Ed could probably tell you about this better than me, um, but a lot of them... And you could argue it's codified in our Westminster Confession uh, or the, catech no, the Catechism. Um, they believe there was a future purpose. Uh, purpose is the wrong word. Um, future salvation for Israel. Specifically stated. Right. The incoming of the Jews. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and there were also even some of them, like, uh, I don't know if y'all have ever heard of uh, Wilhelmus of Brockel. Um, I know the name sounds super odd, but he has that book called uh, Christian's Reasonable Service. It's like a four-volume work um, on systematic theology, but uh, it's been back in print for a few years now. But he was apparently not alone, but he also argued that Israel would be restored to the land, that, that those promises still had a future uh, hope as well. And I mean, he was a reform writer and end of the sixth, end of the seventeenth uh, century, I believe. Well, I kind of look, uh, look at it like the body. Mm -hmm. You know, our body, we, we, we leave it, okay? That connection between us and our body doesn't stop. So I kind of look at, sure. you know, even though, I mean, I don't know, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, no, I, I, but, but I just cannot get over the fact that there's something there that we don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I will say, I, and we can get some more into the quotes and stuff because we got some more time. Um, but even where I disagree with O. Palmer Robertson, in general, he is articulating a position I would agree with. Um, that uh, we live in the reality, that it's not uh, plan B in the New Covenant, that the whole intent in the Old Testament promises was not to like sequester them uh, in that plot of land any more than the promises and commands to Adam were meant to sequester him into the garden. He was supposed to extend that to the ends of the earth as well. Now that's by implication of course it doesn't say that exactly but it seems in keeping that uh, 
if that's the case for Israel, because Israel was called to be a light to the nations and to uh, welcome all in, but also you know, that they would uh, be given the whole earth, as the New Testament shows. And then we see in uh, the Great Commission, when Christ gives it to the apostles, that you're to go to the ends of the world right, and preach the gospel there. And by application, it would make sense that if the second two uh, are included in going to the whole world, then Adam, the first one, uh, would have been included as well. Um, yeah. yeah I, I don't want to let time get away, but no, we're fine. what Ed brought up is interesting because I grew up with the generation before me that were tied into the Schofield Bible and some, and, and Israel was holy. <laughs> and you know, it was the holy city. And he addressed that on page 11 where he talks about that the holiness of the land was tied to the fact that a holy God dwelt there. But then his position that he presented, and I'm not, I'm not arguing, I'm, sure. I'm just laid, stating this out, was that all that was true while the presence of the Lord and the Shekinah glory was there, but when that was removed before the captivity, uh -huh. then the land had no longer had any significance because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as it as it relates to redemption. As right? it relates, to, well, that's what I'm asking. Mm -hmm. Okay, because because but there are those that yes, on, clearly on redemption. But there are those that still to this day would say because it was unique, because it was the area that the Lord did that. That is it is. What does that mean? What value does that place upon the land as a result of that? Yeah, so my understanding would be um, that the manner in which the Lord dwelt in Israel is the manner in which he dwells in the church today. New covenant, right. he dwells in us. Right, right. Okay. Um, but I'm, I'm, being, I'm just going back to the quote time with what Ed was saying, what so you what something of the land you know yeah and because of that 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 was actually the ultimate point um to dwell in his people i will be in your midst right that kind of thing um that there is no uh holiness in that sense attached to uh, I, I fully agree with what he was saying there that in israel has become uh normal as it were but are degraded right yeah i was going to say i would I say that israel as a word. as a land is spiritually charged right where the amplification is there because of what has happened um, but that it has no uh i would say eschatological as well but that's just my position but no redemptive significance anymore like there's there's no yeah. nothing attached to it related to salvation as there used to be yeah, he says, I, I would argue, again, I, I go back to Romans 11, uh, I would argue that, and again, based on the catechism, that, mm -hmm. that to me, that we just changed places. We're brothers that have changed places. They were the brother that was in, mm -hmm. we were the brother that was out. We're the brother that's in now, they're the brother that's out. There's still a relationship, mm -hmm. there's still a connection, they're still in a promise, okay, but they are equal to where we were as Gentiles before, okay? I, I, I kind of see it as 
not an exclusive, you know, when you're out and you're there, there's no, you know, forget, totally isolated. And another thing, just, he is, so, he is, I like Farmer Robinson, he's so clear and forceful in his logic. Mm -hmm. Normally, when you read an argument against the land promise and all of that, you'll get into Joshua and, you know, Second Kings, and you'll hear this long argument about, well, all these promises were failed. He didn't even go there. Mm -hmm. he, he didn't even touch that. He, he immediately, his entire force of his argument is, and, and, I, and I love the beauty of it. Okay? Yeah, yeah. The land's, you know, what it is. This, the whole world is given to the people of God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you look at, what is it, page 29, the last um, paragraph, and it goes over to the next page, Jerusalem today remains as it was in Paul's day. <clears throat> is still in bondage to legalism and rejects the gracious gift of salvation that has come through the Messiah must not be assumed that those who live in Jerusalem today without faith in Jesus have been chosen by God for salvation. Apart from the repentance and faith, the inhabitants of Jerusalem continue to be in bondage not without hope, without God in the world. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 2.12 To suggest anything else is to slight Jesus Christ as sacrifice on the cross. Well, at the same time, in the souls of many by encouraging false presumption. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I underline that as well. Um, and how he points out that uh, <clears throat> just a little bit before that, when he cites Galatians 4, that even in the apostolic era, that Paul was explicit in saying that the, the city of Jerusalem then, that was giving way to the heavenly Jerusalem, was in slavery with her children already, right? Even in Paul's day, because they had, as you said, rejected the gospel. So, yeah, that's good. All right. Um, I mean, I can go through some more quotes here. Is there any other questions or thoughts that y'all want to discuss before I pick pick a couple more quotes that I have? Yeah. Yep. So the first chapter is almost all of the 40 pages that we're going to do each time. That was to be done this time, whatever. Um, but the second chapter, you get like 10 pages of it, and it's all on the people. So what is the land of Israel, basically, is the first chapter. And then who are the people of Israel? Right? And he's using that phrase from the title, the Israel of God, and he gets into that. Um, he... Yeah, so that's, we could we got time to discuss that too, and I something that I had just forgotten, and maybe it's just because I hadn't read the story closely in a while. Um, but Abraham was a Gentile, right? Page thirty-four, right? Abraham was called from Ur of the Chaldees, right, and uh, or the land of Uz. Excuse me, sorry. Is that no? Is it Ur or Uz? Ur. Yeah, I'm tired. Uh, Sean broke my hand and my brain. <laughs> I keep having my hand cramp up when you were out of here. I, I didn't know that you were not in here. And I was trying to write, and my hand was like... <laughs> yeah, so on page 34, because uh, he goes through uh, seven aspects of the identity of the Israel of God. And the very first one he brings up, number one, Abraham was originally simply another Gentile. Yet he was... He was a descendant of Eber. Okay, you know, so I would argue that 
Descendant. There's always been a miserable Anyway, go ahead. Just like descendant of Ebram. 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 That's where the Hebrew name came from. Okay. Go back in the table and the Old Testament. The table of nations? That's how they knew that he wasn't a Hebrew because, you know, they knew Hebrew. Hmm. I'll have to. Well, yeah, so I mean, I'll just read you a little bit more of what he says. He says, at first the question might seem ridiculous. Since Abraham was the father of the Jewish people, he must have been a Jew, even if technically the term Jew arose much later. But Scripture indicates that Abraham was originally nothing more than another pagan Gentile before being called by God. He was simply one of many idol worshipers on the other side of the Euphrates River, Joshua 24, 22. Uh-huh. Biblical theology mm-hmm. makes a very strong point. He actually almost, almost, he assumes that the original language was Hebrew. And the language of heaven. And, and the language of heaven. Okay, and that's where the Hebrew origin comes from. Yeah. And so actually, you know, anyway. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't, uh, from what I've seen in his interaction so far, he doesn't have a ton of footnotes. He has some, but he doesn't interact with older writers a lot, at least uh, from what I've seen so far. But I think to kind of bring a little light on why he would say that about Abraham um, is because he views uh, basically Israel as a conglomerate of people from the beginning and that Abraham was just one of many. and And that was a question I had reading it was, at what point did the national element really become a thing? Because he never really do what? Right. Yeah. That's what. That's kind of yeah. Yeah. Right. Because he doesn't. He doesn't elaborate on it. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same line back in Genesis four and five and three. Where you have the line of Cain and the other line. Okay. Those lines have always been here. And it's only by God's grace and providence that anybody is mm-hmm. being worth it any of them. Sure, yeah. You know, so to me, it's, it, it, it's not like the Adam, Abraham dropped out of the sky. He was part of, you know, a, a, a anyway. In my mind, I see it differently. Yeah. Yeah. I see it as there was an original, there is a continually perpetual relationship of the, of the Hebrew people in God's covenant, redemptive plan. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're not in right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know where yeah, I mean, and I, I think also because of the, to use a term that's probably not overly accurate, but you'll get what I'm saying, I think, uh, overly spiritualized interpretation at times, um, that it, uh, the conclusion is almost assumed before he even begins the argument because of his certain understandings and takes on these these things right and it well, could could be driven by his eschatology trying, i don't know was he saying that because he was trying to point out that gentiles have always been well i mean the only thing he says there further is that nothing of a racial intellectual or spiritual quality made him fundamentally different from any other gentile and then the next point is on page 35 from the beginning any gentile could become a full-fledged jew now when he says, yet Abraham's descendants began their life with an identity among God's people. 
he's right and wrong there because uh, a Gentile could become not a Hebrew genetically, but they could join Israel and be a full... If they were circumcised. But, and I can't even remember where these promises, these uh, passages are, but there are passages that require certain people from coming in, like that when they come in, there has to be a passage of like a generation or two before they become full participants. And I didn't have time to look it up, but I wrote it in the, the side here that in the sense of a Gentile becoming a full inheritor of the promises, yes, upon circumcision. But pr fully participating in the life of the people, no, not immediately. Um, so, yeah. But that was the whole point of the accusation that Ezekiel gave, right? Your mother was a Canaanite, your father was a yeah, and he actually brings up uh, Amos 9, where uh, he says, The election of God could be redirected, yet the Lord promises that he will not cut off his people altogether. Are, you not, Israel, are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Right? Meaning, was I not free to choose them as I freely chose you kind of thing? And Deuteronomy 7 gets into that too that uh, you were not more numerous, more powerful, or more anything else than other nation. I just chose to set my affection on you. I thought it was interesting how he brought up uh, uh, on page 36, uh, talking about exile. He says, By the exile, Abraham's descendants became not my people, yet the old covenant made with Israel did not end with the exile. <laughs> And the way he elaborates on lo ami, uh, which comes up in Hosea, that they are not my people. Uh, it was I haven't thought through that the way that he explained it. Um, Did you go back and look at that on page 16 when he still time to the land? He said in that, he said, those that had once been God's people may become lo ami, mm -hmm. not my people. And he uses the example that some, again, I don't know where his, if his numbers are, I, I don't know where his numbers, you know, I just, Again, that's one of those things I read two or three times when I looked at it, but he said the history of God's people under the old covenant didn't end with the exile. And he used the example that when, supposedly that when they came as a body, you know, coming out of Egypt, 600,000 men, I guess that he, he's pulled that back from Scripture. Yeah, he gives you know, Ezra 6, Ezra 2 and right, Numbers 2 at the end. he goes back that when they came back from the exile that only about... A small body of only about fifty thousand. But his point was making was, you know, a whole a whole group of tribes were lost in the process of doing that, and of trying to go back and make that identification mm -hmm. specific to a person to the land in the process of doing that. But I, anyway, I, I said I, I I've had to bounce back and forth trying to figure out, okay, what we're you know what are you. Mm -hmm. Because he, you know, his, his point being, I think again goes back to that into the man, you know, into the descendants were thrust back into the Gentile world, and to, you know, the northern tribes were lost in that. But yet, there's always, you know, there's always going to be that remnant that are going to be his people in the process, mm -hmm. and the justification under the, you know, under the, the New Testament of, the, of who those who those are. Anyway, yeah, I I don't know what his position is, and maybe I did and I forgot, but uh, his position on like the future 
of Israel because there are some that would kind of argue and read the Old Testament the way that he is and say that um, the inclusion of Israel happened um, in the Gospels and Acts, that Israel was restored to the Lord then. Well, I, I, I think what he was making in this argument, trying to tie those together, because I don't want to get sidetracked, but he was trying to make, because like I said, I tried to figure out back in 2000, who was he, who was he speaking to? Because he goes back and basically he's saying in this and all those examples that, hey, saying that you descended from Abraham carries no guarantee mm-hmm. of anything because mm-hmm. you've been so mixed and dispersed. How do you claim that lineage that it counts yeah. somewhere in the process? Is that what he was trying to do in, in, in looking at Abraham's descendants? Is that what he was trying to make in that point? That that. Yeah, I mean, that's my understanding, okay. that, that his point was that the only people that should have taken any security in the promises um, would have, should have been those who believed, basically. Uh, kind of like... Believed, uh, okay, but help me with that, because I know that's where, you're, that's where you get in those last 10 pages, but believed in the Old Testament, the believers, they mm-hmm. looked to what? Christ. Look to the, well, they look to the Messiah. Right, yeah. All right. Alone, look to the promise, look to that alone. Mm-hmm. No other, that's, that's where I was trying. He, he, he still, I mean, I got, I got to read further, but he, he still kind of confused me on exactly what the recognition was. I know he's discounting. They can't yeah. do it because they're saying I'm a son of Abraham. I, right. I, I yeah, I mean, that. Jesus even answers that in the Gospels. Right, right. right. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I, I like how he articulated that, even though it, it does get muddy at times, but I appreciate the point that, that even though there was a, a national uh, protection, as it were, uh, in the Old Covenant, that it was tied to, in the way that we have the visible church today, right, that there are certain promises and benefits in being in the visible church, but that doesn't mean that you automatically inherit all those promises, right? So in that way, you could apply it back onto the Old Testament. And to me, that's just standard uh, you know, biblical and Reformed theology that they were, as a nation, externally in covenant with God and only the elect ultimately, but only those who believed uh, were those who... Um, would receive the promise, basically, right? That they were, in, in a similar way that we look towards the second coming of Christ in a very shadowy way. We have the promises of Scripture, right? We know it's coming. We have full confidence. Okay, I think that what's missing here is there is, there, there are lesser but significant promises to the visible church, okay? There, there is a redemption for the elect one, okay? I get it. Uh-huh. But, but there's still something attached to being in the invisible church. Yes. Okay. Right. To me, Matthew, you know, in a sense, although although Israel is not an invisible church, I sort of see them in that same bucket. Yeah. Okay. They're they're not no, they're not connected to God. But just and, and I go back to this analogy, I go back to reading reading Genesis eleven. You know? About Noah and Shem and Eber and the all the way line. There's only that name for Abraham. He's a Shemite. Shemite. Okay, so mm-hmm. Shem from that line, from Eber, where the Hebrew name came from. 
so, so that so I know what you're saying that they still have some external yeah, relation. Of course, God, God, there was always community. I would argue the church began way earlier. Okay, there was a church even with Enoch. Okay, oh, not, shoot. Not, that we, not as we know it today, but in a sure, yeah, um, yeah, and that's actually. It, he doesn't really answer it, and this is reading ahead, but just giving you all a little preview because I wanted to know once he started talking about it. He kind of seems to fall in that camp too on page 47, that there is probably, that's the best word I can give you based on how he wrote it, uh, some external relation to the Jews, even the unbelieving Jews today. Um, that, yeah, and that's, that's what he argues on, seems to argue, but not very, very noncommittally. On page 47, um, just to, my understanding of it is, I would, from what I understand of him, I, I don't take that, that position myself. I think that, um, that all of that, those, that Old Testament external relation was, with the nation of Israel, was a shadow, and that we are in it in the New Covenant, that the ultimate type that it was pointing to, the ultimate reality was the external relation that God would establish with the church across the world. Now, that's my understanding. I don't disagree with that at all. I'm just saying that step back further, move the clock back further. Uh-huh. There's a deeper reflection in, the old, in Genesis and before you gave it to Abraham of a community of God's people. Sure, sure. God worked, but, you know, there's a sense of that, that, that shadow in this embryonic form, you know, and, and, and anyway, that's, that's No, yeah, I get, I get, uh, yeah, I wasn't following before, but I'm following with you now, that, that it began before Israel, basically, yeah. Yeah, I would agree that the visible church was in some way established in Genesis 3 when the Lord clothed Adam and Eve with the garments and showed that he had forgiven and covered their sins, that there was that external uh, establishment with the Lord then and that, or, yeah, establishment. And then Noah and his sons were certainly included in it, um, and all that. So, yeah, I, I don't. I personally don't think that there's. I'm open to there being a future conversion of of um, of Israel, although I, it's hard to me to imagine what a true Israelite in an external sense is today because of. How much they've been exiled and married in with other people and whatnot. Like, what what even is an Israelite? Like, because it's not just somebody whose address is in Israel, right? Um, but I'm I'm open to it because the Bible does seem to point that way. But I know there are other ways to take it. Um, well, he kind of in this last chapter, as I haven't really read it, just skimming through it. He kind of does, you know, he kind of doesn't give much credence to it. I mean, we'll get we'll get there, okay? But he tries. I agree, but anyway, yeah, yeah. It, it, it kind of doesn't leave much room. Mm-hmm. But it is, in in general, thinking about, and I'm glad Mr. Ed brought this up, thinking about that, the, I think Gerhardus Voss, but plenty of other people, Steve, you went to Gerhardus Voss University, you should know this. Um, <laughs> that's a joke about Westminster Seminary, if they all know that. Um, that I think he described it as uh, basically redemption or the church began basically as a, a seed or an acorn in the garden, and then all throughout Scripture we see it flowering, 
right? That it's growing and expanding and all that stuff. And that any reversion back to like some special place for national Israel would be, I don't know if this is Voss's position, but at least the way I understand some of the arguments that come from people like him, that any reversion back to an external relation to Israel would be almost like to reverse redemption, right? That that, that has been done away with. Uh, it's been fulfilled in the New Testament, and their exclusion from Christ because of their unbelief is shown uh, in in the Gospels, right? See, I, and I'm and even in Acts. The reason I have a problem with that when I read the great promises in Isaiah and everything else, where, where, to the Gentiles. Sure. I see a joint rejoicing, mm-hmm. okay, of the native Israel with them. So I, I can't help but to see the the metaphor of it ultimately being tied back together. Okay, what what what? Why did he go to all that length to make the promises to Israel, mm-hmm. which was driven into Assyria and were dirt dead for been over two millennial now? Okay, yet yet there's a promise there. Mm-hmm. So what does that, that mean? Okay, to me it means that there's something yet. To happen, we don't understand. I don't know why I think. Yeah. No, I mean, it may very well be the case. I mean, you can't read. How could, how could a Jew ever be excited by that promise if it didn't have some ultimate reality to, to, to them at all? Mm-hmm. That, that's what. Yeah. No, I mean, it's possible. For sure. Saul had all them wives, and he sired so many princes and kings and whatnot. They were dispersed all over the land, so. Anybody can use Israel at this point. Not everybody's got a little bit of Israel in them. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, yeah, it's true. And I'll mention with the dispersion, that was the whole point. That uh, when you read through the lineage of Christ, you can see clearly that it was not specifically Israelites. Three, or three in particular. Um, so why would we think that just because somebody else has a pure Israelite bloodline, that entitles them to some promise. Yeah. Well, I mean, even in Jesus' being included in the line of David, it's by adoption. Because Joseph was in the line of David, not Mary. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, through adoption. And I don't remember him saying he died for the Gentiles. Okay. Not the whole world. Right. Okay, there's something... There's something about the whole world that's bigger than what Roberts is leading it to be. I just cannot get my mind around. There's no place for him at all. I just cannot go there. Yeah. He, he does seem to get close to that at times, but then, when, like I said, when he gets on page 47 and he begins to talk about, he seems to be open to the idea that they still have some external relation. Um, I, I found it surprising, but maybe I just misunderstood him. Doesn't he say that the Jews, such as Christian Jews, now believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Sure. Where you have regular Jews still say the mm-hmm. Messiah has not come. Yeah. No. I mean, it, it, he seemed to. Um, I don't know if I read it in this book or not, but I seem to remember him saying that the gradual bringing in of people who are Jewish that convert to Christianity is proof of the inclusion of Israel. You use so, Paul as that example. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's where they got into Paul's statements clearly that being circumcised does not make you Jewish. Right. I mean, 
is Romans yeah. 2. Yeah, yeah, Romans 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a big one. Um, Which I guess goes back to the Judaizers and their mm-hmm. position that they yeah. take so much trouble from. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a that's an important passage to bring up and to to kind of let like uh, simmer in our thinking, um, because what Paul is saying in Romans two is not all of a sudden the case in the New Testament, right? He's saying that a true Jew has always been and always will be one who is one inwardly, right? Not one who is one outwardly. And then you know again how you have both the idea of Jew and Gentile brought together in Ephesians 2, but also, like Mr. Ed has brought up, that uh, the turning from the Jews to the Gentiles in, in that age as well. Um, so, there's a lot of issues in play. Uh, and this, this, one of the things I like about this book is it makes you look at the Bible from the start mm-hmm. to the end. Right? So many book studies like, uh, you know, you zero in on one passage or one book, and that's, that's good. There's a place for it. But I, I think uh, this can really help us read our Bible as well. So, yeah. um, what did y'all think about his point about the, uh, how do I phrase it, where he argued basically that God chose the land of Israel because of its placement, right? Um, that it was... E- easy access to the rest of the world. Um, it's a separate one. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah but then it got confusing because then he, then he talked about Jesus doing a lot of work in Capernaum. Yeah, well, that was a sign. Yeah. Yeah. So that was. Yeah. But, but it was a crossroads, and it wasn't the crossroads originally that it became in the process. Mm-hmm. So it even became. Mm-hmm. And that's how when that's how the gospel was quickly spread. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's his point. I, I had never thought about it. I've thought about how Paul says that uh, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, and I think it was a Sunday school lesson we had here a while back that traditional or older writers used to say that 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 didn't just mean like when God had had enough of sin, but that at the right time historically, when the gospel could not just land but boom through the nations because of the Roman Empire and different things like that, that that is part of what was entailed at, at the right time. But he brings up like different, you know, the rivers and bodies of water and the geography and how God chose Israel or the place that was called Israel, um, that spot uh, for a reason because it would have, have that effect basically whenever the time came. Yeah. So perfection on God's that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was something too, and I don't know if, if this is something y'all have noticed in the Old Testament, that there was a... Uh, at least as I've been taught, that there was an ethnic component to the Old Testament uh, and that God was part of his forbidding Israel to intermarry was not just spiritual, but it was genealogical. And that his, like uh, I think it's in the book of Ezra at the end where 
uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, they break up all those marriages that they've mm-hmm. had with with foreign uh, women and whatnot. But that there was a uh, um, a point for uh, a point about salvation in that that God was protecting the promise through the, the Hebrew people, right? The seed, the promise of the seed, um, and that it was tied to them uh, ethnically. And I, I, I mean, he hasn't brought it up yet. We're only forty pages in, but I wonder how that would compute um, with some of these things. And, and it's not something that, again, O. Palmer Robertson gets into or is even directly related to what he says, but I've, I've, I've wondered that in my reading of the Old Testament because there does appear to be a certain ethnic component and how, like for instance, only the uh, certain lines could be in the priesthood, right? Like you couldn't you know, join from Zimbabwe, be circumcised, and then eventually become a priest like you couldn't. Like, there were certain ethnic components to it. Um, but Moses' children were excluded because of their mother. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like Theo Vaughn up here saying, yep, mm-hmm, 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 yep. <laughs> it's a comedian that does that. When he's listening, people talk. Mm-hmm. Yep. Y'all got anything else? Any questions? No questions. He just he threw in something else that I had never, and I've still got to go back and look at that. But that part of of his talking about when God departed, His glory left, and then he referenced the cherubim and the wheels. Mm-hmm. I, that one. What page? Well, it started on fifteen and goes on and. He lost me and, and David giving something to Solomon to, to I, he lost me on that one. <laughs> what are these whirling wheels? Okay, Trent, what are these whirling wheels? Yeah, All right, so. I, I mean, he, the provisions made by David for Solomon's building of the temple, David left for Solomon's plan for the chariot, that is the chariot will go and spread their wings and shelter the ark of the covenant of the Lord. In other words, a chariot would, with wheels was part of the Paraphernalia of the ark, and supposedly you could hear the whirring oh, sound. Oh, yeah, God I remember this. I, now that was new to me. Yeah, yeah. There, there are some people that make that argument that that part of what is being shown through Ezekiel, because uh, the angels are shown as having those whirring wheels, is that God is on the move, basically that He is moving away from Israel because of their rejection of Him. I mean, I can understand moving away from Israel because yeah, of yeah. Rejection, but that, I, that one, that one. Yeah. And it symbolized the fact that God's presence was mobile, is what he says on page 12. Uh, page 16, footnote 12, where he cites uh, First Chronicles commentary. Correct. Um, I just had never, I had never in my years heard anything regarding that. So that. Yeah, so one of the people he cites down there is C.F. Keel, um, which is pretty, pretty standard. Um, Commentary on the Old Testament, very, very highly thought of. And it says he relates the chariot to the cherubim, noting that Ezekiel saw wheels on the throne of God under the cherubim. And this interpretation is supported by the rending of the Septuagint and the Vulgate. So that there, it wouldn't be immediately obvious to us in reading uh, our Bibles, especially if you're reading uh, the King James or the New King James, because they stick a little closer to the Hebrew. Um, but if you were to see the Septuagint, evidently, the Greek Old Testament, 
or the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, um, then maybe it would be more clear to you. Us, not you in particular, but us. So, yeah, that is a interesting question. Um, let's see here. Okay, so let me backtrack for just a second and we'll wrap up. And if y'all have anything else, be thinking of it right now. Um, I appreciate the points as well. Uh, just looking over at page 17, since you brought up page 16, uh, that first full paragraph kind of in the middle of the page says, Like all old covenant shadows, these glorious prospects have been realized in the days of the new covenant, when people worship neither in Jerusalem nor in Samaria, but wherever in the world the Spirit of God manifests himself. The redemptive reality that the old covenant city could only foreshadow finds its consummate realization in the Jerusalem above, which is the mother of us all. This Jerusalem above is not merely a spiritual phenomenon that has no connection with the real world in which we live. Its reality injects itself constantly into the lives of God's people. Every time we assemble for worship, uh, every time Christians assemble for worship, they join with the host of the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's a, that's a hard concept to grasp. And I think it's because... Uh, we all are kind of uh, um, closet materials, materialists that have trouble walking by faith rather than by sight. Um, but that things are better now that it has been translated and fulfilled up into heaven. Right? That there was a certain limitation in the Old Testament, a certain, I think I said this Sunday morning, I don't know if I said it in the sermon or in Sunday school, but that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was intentionally temporary. Right? It was not meant to go on forever. And the idea of shadow and reality, just those two terms alone, just makes so much click when you read your Bible. Right? And that we live in the reality and the antitype. The thing has, has come, and we're no longer living in the shadows. Uh, so that was reference to the second coming, but... Anything else? All right. I should have the books by the end of the week. Uh, so if you need one, get it from me Sunday or um, Larry, I'll make sure you get one whenever they come in. Or if you find that you have one, let me know. You think you'll have them by Friday? That's what they told me, that they would arrive by Friday. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, I'll let you know. <laughs> Actually, I'd, I'll uh, be working somewhere else on Friday. Um, but what I'll do is, um, if I'm not able to meet up with you, I'll I'll leave one up here somewhere for you to get it at the church or something. So, all right, let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we uh, confess that.